Welcome to the NFL 100 pod from Gridiron, a new podcast celebrating the 100th season of the NFL by looking week by week at the schedule, the great rivalries that are going on on each week, and looking at the history of them with stories told by those who lived them. This week, a team who have faced off twice in the Super Bowl, who are intrinsically linked by one of the great all-time coaches. We're talking about the San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals. Hello, welcome to the NFL 100 show with me, Will Gavin, my favourite NFL historian, Matt Sherry, alongside me. I have to say that before every podcast. It's a contractual obligation, but I mean it, buddy. I really do. Thanks, um, this weekend, in, uh, in one of the one o'clock kickoffs, the San Francisco 49ers take on the Cincinnati Bengals, which doesn't sound like a traditional rivalry. They're cross-conference from each other. They should only face each other in less than a Super Bowl once every four years. This isn't like last week's show where we're talking about divisional rivals who play each other twice a year. We're talking about two teams who shouldn't really have such strong links. And yet, Bill Walsh intrinsically brings these two teams together. Yeah, he does. I mean, you know, for all the great things Bill Walsh did in, in San Francisco, it almost becomes lost in that, that his career in the NFL started with the Cincinnati Bengals, really. He spent a year with the Oakland Raiders earlier in his career. But it, it kicked off in earnest with Cincinnati. And under the mentorship of Paul Brown, the the godfather of NFL coaching, you know, the guy who, who really created the blueprint of what an NFL head coach is. And he spotted something in, in Walsh. He gave him a lot, a lot of things that nobody else ever got. Brown would usually call his own offensive players, but he let Walsh, when he became the offensive coordinator, call his own players. And that's interesting on multiple levels. Firstly, it creates this scripting of players that is now literally done by every offensive coordinator in football, which that came about because Paul Brown would go up to Walsh and say, hey, can you give me your openers for the week? So Walsh would start scripting them. And what he learned eventually is, it, it, it's a nice way of running an offense, and everybody copied off that. So there's this incredible relationship. Bill Walsh in, innovating. What a shock. Yeah, I know. Very <laughs> good. So, well, yeah, but the next innovation is the, is the West Coast offense, and it wasn't called the West Coast offense in Cincinnati. It was called the Ohio River offense. Now, that in itself is a fascinating story. I mean, what's interesting about the NFL, and, and certainly the schematic side, is how much of it is actually accidental. You know, in the case of Bill Walsh and the Cincinnati Bengals, Bengals fans in the in the late 60s, early 70s, thought they had it made because they had a quarterback who, even at the end of his career, Bill Walsh described as the greatest player to ever play the position. It wasn't Steve Young. It wasn't Joe Montana. It was Greg Cook, an incredible talent who separated his shoulder in his in his rookie season and the numbers still put out but in that offense even with a separated shoulder incredible i think cook it was about 19 yards per completion that year scarcely believable numbers but after separating his shoulder and tearing his labral labrum he basically was never the same guy again so cincinnati had to had to go from this big armed sensational deep passer to the backup who was a guy called virgil carter and Virgil Carter was the opposite. He was very accurate on short passes, but didn't have a big arm. 
So Bill Walsh had to develop an offense for Virgil Carter. Now, the foundation of everything Bill Walsh did was from Sid Gilman, the great schemer for the for the San Diego Chargers teams the previous decade. And, and Gilman's big thing was to use the entire width of the field. And it's interesting that Walsh inherited these indirectly from Al Davis. Now, Davis took his concepts and built a deep passing attack in Oakland. Walsh built this horizontal attack first in Cincinnati entirely by accident to take advantage of, of Virgil Carter. And then eventually he finds his next Greg Cook, his next true young quarterback prospect. And that's a guy called Ken Anderson, who was, I think, a third-round pick in the, in the 70s. Ken Anderson can tell you about the West Coast offense better than I can. We've got Ken Anderson coming up. We should have mentioned, because I've got to at the top of the show, and this was terrible for me, that we have got coming up in this show. <laughs> Roger Craig. We've got a man who is as intrinsically linked with these two franchises, almost as Bill Walsh in Sam Weish, offensive coordinator at one, head coach of the other, and we've got Hall of Famer, the greatest wide receiver of all time, Jerry Rice Perhaps coming up. Perhaps the greatest up. player of all time. It's in the conversation, that's for sure. He's one of th- there's three who are indisputably the conversation, and he's one of them. Jerry Rice, Jim Tom Brown, Brady, Jim Brown. Tom Brady, and maybe, maybe Lawrence Taylor as well. Yeah, okay. I'll take, I'll give you that. Well, this is that's another pod for another time, <laughs> isn't it? But Ken Anderson, quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals, and he spoke to you, or you spoke to him for your book, and asked him about. Well, you got into the West Coast offense, but you started off by asking him that concept of Paul Brown actually allowing another man to call his plays. I mean, who would have thought it? Well, nobody at the time, but it happened. You know, at that point in time. That, that Paul Brown wasn't involved so much in the game planning itself, you know, yeah. that that was up to the assistant coaches. And, and so they're the ones that, that kind of knew what they wanted to get done with the game plan. And, you know, the, the calls came down from the press box uh, from Bill Walsh to Bill Johnson. And, uh, you know, as always, coach Brown had the final uh, say on, on what went in, in there, but, uh, you know, I think he had great confidence in his assistant coaches. Yeah, and, and, you know, the stumbled, it, it, it was not long before that that the coach Walter really stumbled upon what would become the hallmark of his career in the West Coast offence in that, you know, there was a very different offence once Virgil Carter took over and they kind of had to adjust this offence around him, but actually ended up finding a formula that really worked. What what was it like being the first guy in that, in that offence who really... Obviously, Virgil Carter had been there, but it was kind of getting built around your skill set as well. And and just describe it to me, because from what I, from speaking to other guys, it sounds like you know the key for you guys as quarterbacks was the footwork and timing the footwork up so that the minute that you got to the to the to the to your drop, the guy was literally coming out of his break. Just just how timed and scientific was it in that sense as well? Well, you know, it was very detail-oriented, you know, I mean, from a quarterback standpoint. I mean, when I learned it, uh, you know, literally, you know, I stood in place and just, you know, you know, lifted my feet, one, two, three, for a three-step drop, you know, one, two, three, hold for a three and hold, you know, you would then you would take five steps. And then, you know, the next week we would, you know, I would walk back steps. And then the, the third week, you know, you would kind of jog back. So it was a month before I'm trying to do anything close to full speed as far as the drop, but, you know, and then receivers, the, the depth was critical. The steps they took on their route was, was critical that, you 
everything was the receiver being at the right depth at the right time for the quarterback's drop so the ball could be released, you know, with anticipation. Uh, you know, I, I think the other thing, you know, is, is we had progressions to go through. There was a primary receiver, a secondary, a third, and an outlet. And, you know, we, you know, we didn't want to take sacks. We didn't want to throw in completions. And, you know, if you threw an outlet pass to a, uh, a running back for a two-yard gain, that was a successful play. We, we kept it going. And it, it was okay to throw the football away and not take sacks. And, you know, like I say, the, the, the thing with Bill was just, you know, was the attention to detail he put into every aspect of the offense. What was it like when, you know, when you first started to realize, you know, this is a pretty special system because you know even even pre-1978 when we saw the rule changes that really changed the game for offenses you guys still moved the ball through the air a lot more than probably any other team in that era so what what was that like to to really feel like you were part of, of something pretty special like that well you know lo- looking back on it you know it, it was you, you didn't know you were part of something something so this was all i knew you know coming into the league you know bill kind of had a, a piece of clay and he could mold me into whatever he, he wanted me to be. So that this was just what we did. But, you know, you look back on it in that era, and, you know, if a quarterback, uh, you know, probably completed 50% of his passes, that was probably the league average. Uh, if you threw one touchdown pass for every interception, that was probably the league average. But all of a sudden, you know, we're completing you know, over 60% of our passes, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we're throwing three touchdowns to one interception. And so it kind of, I think, revolutionized how quarterbacks played the game a little bit. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously you, you then had the situation where Coach Brown retired and, you know, the, the, the wider expectation was that, that Coach Walsh would be elevated to, to that job. Were you Were you surprised when he wasn't? Uh, not really, you know, it, 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 obviously now we, we look back, uh, you know, from the perspective of what happened with, with Bill with the 49ers, but I think, you know, at, at that moment in time, you know, I, you know, and thinking back that I, I think that, you know, Bill Johnson was more ready to be a head coach than Bill Walsh was at that moment in time. Yeah. And certainly when you reflect back that, you know, that was maybe not the case and, and I know, uh, you know, we all anticipated that, that Bill would stay and run the offense. And, you know, it, it hurt him tremendously that he was not named the head coach. And, and he went on, I think, you know, he went to, to San Diego for a year with Dan Fouts. And, you know, before he went, uh, you know, all of a sudden up to, to Stanford and then the 49ers. But, uh, you know, at, at that moment in time, I, I agreed with the decision that, that Bill Johnson was, uh, was the right fit. Ken Anderson, quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals, under Bill Walsh's offensive coordinator, under Paul Brown as head coach. Potential Hall of Famer this year. He's in that group. He, he is absolutely one of the people in this expanded class who I think will get in. But the, the, the big thing at the end there that I thought was fascinating is this idea that Ken Anderson wasn't surprised when Bill Walsh didn't take over from Paul Brown as their head coach when he stepped down. But... I mean, the story is, the legend is, is that Bill Walsh was absolutely livid and was in the full understanding that he would be the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, I mean, it's not legend. He admitted it himself. He was really hurt. I mean, I think Brown essentially didn't think he was emotionally intelligent enough to be an NFL head coach. I mean, there's, well a, done, Paul. there's a great... I, I spoke to Dick Vermeil about Walsh, uh, and there's a great story he said where they were good friends and Walsh uh, Vermeil was the Eagles head coach at the time. And he said, Bill would call me up 
on a Monday morning after a defeat and I used to spend two hours trying to convince him not to jump off the nearest bridge. Like he was, they lost a game and he was uber intense. So, so Brown did identify that, but the problem with Paul Brown is he had a vindictive streak. This showed itself earlier in his career with another assistant coach, Blanton Collier, who was given the Cleveland Browns job after, after Brown lost it. Now Collier went to Brown and said, I've been offered the job. It wouldn't feel right if I took it without speaking to you. Brown okayed it completely, said it was fine, and then never spoke to him again. So Walsh also learned about this streak because he'd later find out that when he was the offensive coordinator, Brown blocked him from interviewing for other head coaching jobs. And then when he left Cincinnati, which he did after being usurped for the top job, he he found out that Brown gave him bad reputation around the league, said a lot of negative things about him. So then you get into this situation where Bill it's like, Walsh... It's like an abusive relationship. It's not, it's literally... not nice, ultimately. Like it's, it's, it's a real black mark on, on a truly historic figure in the game. You know, one who Bill Belichick cites as the greatest coach and influence in his life, Paul Brown. So... So, yeah, it's not great, but I mean... That level of intensity, you expect it from winners and you see it from those who are serial winners and you see the way that they will react differently to other people. But yeah. there is there is intensity and then there's vindictiveness yeah. and, and that definitely fell into there's the latter. Line, isn't there? And then you just think, okay, maybe it needed Bill Walsh to to go away and, and spend his years in Stamford and go and spend his year with the Chargers in order to get to where he needed to be when he took over the 49ers. But you do also look at it and you think, you stop this man from getting head coaching jobs. And he ended up going on to be in the conversation for the greatest head coach of all time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and in fairness, it, it does ultimately work out quite nicely for, for Walsh. He <laughs> does all right with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, he goes to he goes to San Diego for a season, does a, does a great job there as the coordinator. Spends three years at Stanford, and then and then this San Francisco 49ers team, shambolic from the start in many ways. Yeah, you know that, that that's not true actually. They, they came into the league and came into foundation as part of the AFC, and they were an entertaining team. They 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 were they were a team that they were a team that exemplified the city they were from when Walsh arrived. They were entertaining, capable of the odd great night, but never offered anything substantive. That was San Francisco in the 1970s, and that was their 49ers. But, you know, ultimately, along comes this man in Bill Walsh, who really mirrors what San Francisco becomes as an innovator, somebody who, if he wasn't a football coach, would probably have been running a, a Fortune 500 company. And that's, that's the bit that Paul Brown didn't, didn't see. What he was also brilliant at was evaluating talent. Now, what the 49ers needed for Bill Walsh's system to work when he first arrived as a quarterback. Now, they managed to get one and a great wide receiver, scouted on the same day, and it was all a complete accident. And it was it's interesting because it's a draft, and we're obviously talking about the great Joe Montana. It's a draft where he comes in and he's, there's a quarterback there who he spent three years working with. Yeah, Steve with. Dills at Stanford. S Steve Dills in Stanford. And everyone was like, well, you know, it's it's... It's Andrew Luck going into yeah, yeah. the NFL at the same time as Harbour, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah. It, that's got to be it. They've got to go together. It's yeah. got to work like that. But 
he goes with his offensive coordinator, Steve Weish. They go on a bit of a scouting. <laughs> Steve was not, not NFL Network, Steve Weish. <laughs> uh, funny part is, I nearly did it earlier on. So that's why I so yeah. yeah, brilliant. He, um, yeah, who's also a lovely man, by the way. Saw him on Thursday night at the Packers game and had a little chat to him. Did He's really? delightful. Yeah, he was absolutely lovely. Um, he was... Right, sorry, we were talking about Sam Weish, weren't yeah. we? Sam Weish... The offensive coordinator at that time of the 49ers, the two of them go off on a uh, on a scouting trip. It's two separate scouting trips. They go off on a scouting trip to two separate locations. <laughs> Let's call it as it is. <laughs> um, and yeah, they managed to go and find two talents who, who change the direction of the San Francisco 49ers franchise. Well, we got our, our normal coaching, our scouting staff is, you know, bringing in reports. And uh, we were going to take a kid named Steve Dills, who was a quarterback at Stanford, and Bill knew him well because he coached him somewhere along the way when he was at Stanford. And we, and he's a good quarterback too. I mean, it, he would have been a good pick. But um, the week before the draft, um, Bill is making a trip to Clemson University to work out a guy named Steve um, Fuller. With a lot of Steves in here. Steve Fuller, quarterback, and, and he, Bill, on um, the trip down before the trip, he said, Steve, would you get a grab a, a wide receiver to catch up so that I don't have to catch the ball? I want to watch you and, you know, so get a receiver. Well, his roommate was a guy named Dwight Clark. Huh. And so Dwight Clark was the catch up guy, and, and Bill liked Steve Fuller, but I think he still thought Steve Dills was his first choice. and um, But he said, we're going to take this Dwight Clark. He's got some potential. We can take him late in the draft or maybe as a free agent. Well, we take him, I think, in the 12th round in those days. <clears throat> but the same week that he's at Clemson, the same trip days that he's in Clemson, I'm, he asked me to go down to UCLA to work out a game. James Owens, a wide receiver, slash running back slash return guy at UCLA uh, or UCLA or Southern Cal. No, it was UCLA. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, so I go down and I, I, uh, Bill says, make sure you get a quarterback. See if you can find a quarterback on the West coast somewhere just to throw to him so that you can watch the receivers moves. Well, Joe Montana at the time was, um, spending time with his future wife uh, in Manhattan Beach right there near the campus or in the same area anyway. And I called Joe and uh, got him on the phone and said, can you come over and and we'll work out at like whatever time, three o'clock at the uh, UCLA uh, practice field number two. Y'all be there, coach. Well, when I got back, I made a report. I said, Owens is a good receiver, but I'm not sure he's a great one, but he's a good one. But Joe Montana's got something special, and Bill, you and I need to go back again before the draft, and I want you to see this kid work out and and listen to and, and watch what he's able to do when you give him some instructions and some tips because he doesn't take any time to put him into practice. Boy, he is quick to he can adjust to anything. Well, Bill and I went back again before the draft, a few days before the draft, <clears throat> and Joe had a, a better workout. Owens had a not as good as the first one I saw. And, but he said, tell the, tell the staff when we get back there 
that will take Owens in the second and Montana in the third. We didn't have a first-round pick. The previous staff had traded it away for O.J. Simpson in his later years. Yeah. Coincidentally, I'd, pl- I'd played one year with O.J. in Buffalo, by the way, in my my journey around the NFL as a player. Oh, really? Right. So I knew you. <laughs> yeah, I knew him very well. In fact, he, he did a commercial for my sporting goods store, <laughs> a, a radio commercial that uh, we ran. That's when he was jumping over luggage in the airport, you know, uh, selling everything. Everybody wanted him. He said, I'll do it for you for nothing. OJ was a great guy. I mean, he was really, I can't believe he, some of the, well, I won't go into that, but I, he was a great guy when I knew him. But Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, but, um, Anyway, we go down, we work out Joe. On the way back, he says, we'll take Owens second, Montana the third. And I said, Bill, you know what? I, I mean, if you like Montana, I really like him now after this second time around. If you like him, let's don't take a chance. He said, no, nah, he'll be there in the third. Well, <clears throat> years later, uh, I'm in a golf tournament in Milwaukee, Lombardi Golf Tournament, and... Marge Starr is in the group in front of me, and we're backed up on the tee box. <clears throat> we're just chatting. And he said, Sam, you remember back in 1979 when in the draft, you guys uh, had the, the, we had the pick, let's see, what was it? We had the pick in Green Bay right before you guys had your pick in the, in the draft. And we got to the third round, and Joe Montana hadn't been drafted yet. We had a screaming, hollering match in the in the draft room as to whether we were going to take a, I think it was a lineman from the Midwest somewhere, and an offensive lineman, or take Joe Montana. <clears throat> and the, the line coach wins out, and we took the lineman. Hmm. By the way, he didn't make the team. <laughs> this third round now, so some third rounders don't make it. But... He said, we took the lineman, which left Joe Montana. Otherwise, Joe would have been one of the long line of great quarterbacks <clears throat> playing for the Green Bay Packers. And don't tell her what would have happened in San Francisco. But we took Joe in the third round. That's how stupid the NFL is sometimes. <clears throat> Same thing with Tom Brady in the fifth round. Um, you don't always identify the superstar, the future stars uh, when they come out of college. But Joey was a great guy to coach. He was so easy. I told people when I when I when I go to coach him, I had to talk fast and I had to talk short because he would lean into you and almost almost lip the last syllable off your lips if you didn't shut up and let him go do it. Whatever you were trying to coach him, uh, but he was a he was a great kid to work with, and we're still good friends. We. Do favors for each other even today, charity events and things. Yeah, absolutely. And, but that's uh, how that happened. The, the, <clears throat> yeah, the real story, that, the, the real kind of twist there in, in your article is that Bill went to Clemson to, to recruit a court to grade and maybe draft a quarterback and discovered Dwight Clark, the wide receiver that made the catch that changed the fortunes of the 49ers. I went down to UCLA to work with a wide receiver and found a quarterback named Joe Montana that was on the other end of that change of fortunes pass called the catch now in the Bay Area. 
Samwise speaking with you again, uh, you know, at the time, and we'll hear more from Samwise later on because he comes back in this story. <laughs> Spoiler warning, Samwise <laughs> is going to return at the end. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like a Scooby-Doo villain. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be revealed in a much more prominent role later in the show uh, as we're talking about the Cincinnati Bengals and the San Francisco 49ers rivalry over the years. Uh, really fascinating story at the end there where he talked about being at the golf event with, with Bart Starr. And how, actually, Joe Montana nearly wasn't a San Francisco 49er. Yeah, and there were multiple examples of that. I mean, you know, they always say even the greats need a little bit of luck. The 49ers had luck in finding Joe Montana. They had even more luck in, in drafting him. You know, Walsh was confident they could get him in the third round. It turned out that the Dallas Cowboys, at the point they picked in the second round, and I spoke to Gil Brand about this, um, they had him at the top of their board and he said to me in every draft in the history of the Cowboys when he and Tex Schramm were there they always followed the draft board to the letter it wasn't about need it was always about, it best, was about player the best player available the ultimate team of doing that but they had three quarterbacks already in the building that they liked they didn't think they'd be able to keep him on the roster if they drafted him and for one time only they made an exception and that exception was Joe Montana. That's wonderful. And then and then it comes full circle again, just like, you know, who was the team that they beat with the catch in the NFC Championship game? The team that they beat with the catch with the two players that we're talking about, Absolutely. with Dwight Clark, with Joe Montana. The most famous moment potentially in 49ers history, and it doesn't even come in a Super Bowl against the Cowboys, but it takes them to a Super Bowl against which team, Matt Sherry? Well, it would be the Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> and that's and that's it's just crazy how it works out. And you know, the key game was the catch ultimately for that season. You know, Bill Walsh referred to it as Camelot. It was the start of a dynasty, and the dynasty only probably gets started though with a Super Bowl win. And, and Walsh gets the ultimate revenge over Paul Brown, and um, the San Francisco Forty Nine has gone to win that game twenty six twenty one, and title one of five goes to San Francisco. So they go to Super Bowl 16, they beat the Cincinnati Bengals. There is that element of getting the, the revenge over Paul Brown. But but actually after that, for a team that's seen as a dynasty, for a team that's seen as being so brilliant over that 80s and 90s stretch, it's not immediate success after that point. It's not, right, we've got our quarterback, we've got our system, we're going to go and we're going to dominate. It takes some time to build that team to a point where they can be a true juggernaut. They have to go out and find those offensive weapons that we've now become so intrinsically linked with the team. Yeah, I mean, the next year was a strange one for the full league. You know, it was a strike-shortened season. Um, so it was just it was just odd for a lot of teams. that There were, I can't remember how many regular season games off the top of my head, but there weren't, it wasn't a full schedule of games. They struggled and then they, and then they rebuilt it and they, they were good again the season after that. And then... With the arrival of Roger Craig, who is another one alongside Ken Anderson, who should be talked about he's, he's in, been, in the Hall of Fame. He's been a semi-finalist the last couple of years, but he's not got through to the finals or, or got in, obviously. I mean, a couple of significant achievements. The first man to rush for 1,000 yards and receive for 1,000 in a season. The only player to ever go to the Pro Bowl as both a fullback and a, and a running back. You know, he was a great player and he was the missing piece. Um, that eventually led to Super Bowl number two, which um, which was one of the great Super Bowl quarterback matchups, but actually was a bit of disappointment. 
because for all Montana was great, Dan Marino couldn't couldn't quite make it happen. And they win the second title, 38-16 in Super Bowl 19. And then the following season, or the following off season, as if it wasn't ridiculous enough, they draft Jerry Rice. And, <laughs> and on the subject of Bill Walsh having these moments of pure fortune, do you want to know how we discovered Jerry Rice just, just off topic? No, well, it's, you know, it's probably a 49ers heavy podcast, I'm aware, but that was always going to happen. So he sat in a hotel room in New Orleans before the regular season game the night before, and some highlights of, a, of local college football come on, and this wide receiver for, I think it was Mississippi Valley State, flashes across the, the screen. Within a week, Bill Walsh was already drawn a place for him, and he drafted him. And by the way, they drafted him one pick before another team was going to draft him. Who was that team, Will? It was the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> it's amazing how all these things link together, man. It's it really totally is. Amazing. It really is. So they don't... The thing is, so Jerry Rice comes in. They've won two Super Bowls in recent years. They, you know, they've had that kind of wobble in the middle. And then they don't win a Super Bowl for the first three years that he's there. Yeah, yeah you have the... I mean, you have great teams. That's the one thing I would say about this era. It was great teams every year. The giant, the 85 Bears, obviously. The Giants team who won the Broncos was the first Super Bowl with Belichick and Parcells. Yeah, that unbelievable great, Great defense. Yeah. And, and, and a better team than the, the one who wins it subsequently because they had Harry Carson at middle linebacker who wasn't in the next team. And then the Washington um, teams under Joe Gibbs were brilliant. I mean, probably the most underrated. I mean, when you talk about the coaches of that era. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's the one... He won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, that in itself. And also then subsequently left football and won championships as the principal of a NASCAR team, which I find really <laughs> odd, but it's a good little it's a good little fact as well. And then and then, you know, the nineteen eighty eight season, I would describe it as the culmination of everything Bill Walsh built. It turned out to be his final season as well. But you know, the season that defines the career of one of the greatest head coaches of all time was a rocky path. He was famous, like Belichick, for wanting to get rid of players early. He traded for Steve Young at that point, and there was a quarterback battle of the two of them playing different points early in the season, and it didn't work. You know, the rotating of the two of them didn't work, and it took, it took the players to take action, and, and that's the story Roger Craig can tell us now. In 1988, uh, we weren't even supposed to be in the Super Bowl that year. And um, so we basically, um, when we were 6-5, and five, the fans were booing us, the media was giving us a hard time, and we took ownership of our team. And so we, we called a team meeting, and we kicked Bill Walsh out of the meeting and said, Bill, you got to go. We're taking over our own team, you know, and, 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 and we, we got to – you know, get get everybody on the right page here. So Bill Walsh and his coaches, they all walked out of the room. So leaders like myself, Ronnie Lott, Jerry, Joe, we all talked about what we need to do the next five weeks. We were six and five at, at the time, and and um, and, and we, we had to focus on the next four to five weeks, you know, to get to make the playoffs. Because, you know, people were booing us. You know, they were like, we were losing games like it wasn't even funny, man. Yeah. You know? And so and so we took ownership of our team. And, and so uh, we, we did that, right? 
we did it. And so those the next five games, we only had to win four out of the next five games. And so we kicked ass those four uh, all those four games. We we, we made it. We we're ten and six. And, and so the last game, we just, you know, we, 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 we didn't have to win. All we, had, all we had to do was win four out of the five last games. So we just took it easy the last game so we'd get ready for the playoffs. Yeah. So we're, we're underdogs playing against Minnesota Vikings. We kick their ass. We kick Minnesota Vikings' ass. And then um, I ran an 80-yard touchdown late in the game to just to ice the game, just to put it on ice after that, you know. And and then we play against Chicago. Now, here we are, we're playing in weather that's 35 below wind chill factor. And they're saying, oh, the 49ers are sissies. They can't play in this kind of cold weather. You know, we have to play back in, in Chicago, you know, at their stadium. And um, so we kicked their bus 23 nothing. Yeah, I remember. I, 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 <laughs> and then I we went on to the Super Bowl. We went on to the Super Bowl, and and we still were underdogs in the Super Bowl Cincinnati. with the last with the last three minutes left in the game when we had the ball and we are, and we were we we're behind and we moved the ball like 80 something yards down the field with three minutes left in the game and we beat Cincinnati Bengals. That was the best game I ever. Played. That was the best year of my ever I ever played in every any in any any of the Super Bowls I played in. That was my best year because of the adversity we went through. How we came together as a unit, as a team, as one heartbeat. We we're one heartbeat. Our team was one heartbeat. We didn't have any skips. All one heartbeat. We all bought in. We all sacrificed, and we we won the Super Bowl that year. That was my favorite Super Bowl. You know, people always say. What, what, was your first Super Bowl your your your, your favorite Super Bowl? I said, hell no, no way, no. That season as well. I mean, how important was it when Coach Walsh decided that that Joe would be the starting quarterback? Because that was obviously the year where you know he was alternating between Joe and Steve for much of the start of the year. Was was that decision to go to Joe an important one in in that as well? Uh, on Steve. Yeah, it, it it felt like Coach Walsh was was alternating a quarterback, and then. He decided Joe was his guy halfway through that season. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. Steve, Joe got hurt that that season. Yeah, you're right. And and, and Steve, he went back to Joe because Joe, he, he, you know, he brings he brings that start kind of mentality to the game. He's like the Michael Jordan. He's like the Larry Bird. You know, he, he he's like the Magic Johnson. He's you know he he's that kind of guy. You know, and so. Uh, Joe was ready to rock and roll, you know, and um, it was just, it was so cool. <laughs> so Roger Craig, on that 1988 season, uh, you know, weren't even supposed to be in the Super Bowl, six and five. Everyone's telling them they can't do it. They pick up some steam with Rice, with Craig, Montana, that unbelievable uh, offensive unit. They get to the Super Bowl again and again. It's Walsh's former side that they face, the Cincinnati Bengals, but with some added spice this time, because the man on the other sideline is the man who helped them find Joe Montana. It's Sam Weish. It is Sam Weish. And, you know, this was a fascinating matchup because Sam Weish, like his mentor Bill Walsh, he had his own offensive innovation, and that was the no-huddle offense. And it took the league by storm throughout this era and also was stumbled upon accidentally, by the way, he, they had a sprinter in the team in the 49ers 
and the guy happened to make a comment about his conditioning and that convinced Sam White to create the no huddle offence. So they were a great team, the Bengals, though. They, they had White's offence and then their defensive coordinator was quite good as well. You might have heard of him. A guy called Dick LeBeau. Just, <laughs> just starting out with his, with his zone blitz scheme. So it was a fascinating, fascinating matchup. And one that was back and forth. It was a dogfight. And with three minutes or so left, the Cincinnati Bengals led 16-13. And it looked like Paul Brown, who'd had all the NFL championships he had at the start of his career, but never won the Super Bowl, would finally win it. But unfortunately, Captain Cool himself was on the field. Joe Montana walks out, walks up to everybody in the huddle, points to them and says, hey guys, isn't that John Candy over there in the crowd? And then proceeds to craft the masterpiece that defines his career. And, and I've personally spoken with Jerry Rice and, and a few other players in that team about that moment. And they all acknowledge that it was just perfect because they're sitting here going, we're about to lose the Super Bowl. It's not something we're used to doing as the 49ers. And we are relying on our, on our leader to come in and say something inspirational yeah. to take us home. And instead he comes in and he just completely disperses the mood of, of terror by pointing out the brilliant John Candy in the crowd. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful moment. Yeah, and it's a wonderful moment that, you know, it, in a crazy year for Montana, let's listen to Jerry Rice talk about it, you know. So he goes through the, the whole year, the difficulty, until Montana gets the starting job back and culminating in that magical drive. Well, there was so much going on, and he times that he didn't want you to be around too long as a veteran, and he would always try to, you know, try to retire you or... It, but it's up to you if you want to go to another team to play. And, I, you know, I think Joe felt a little bit of, bit of that. I think, you know, with Steve, there was some competition going on, some adversity and stuff like that. But once he pretty much named Joe as the guy, we decided to just rattle around him. And we were able to go on and do great things. And, and we knew that if we had time on the clock, you know, against the Cincinnati Bengals on that final drive, doing Super Bowl twenty three, that we could move the ball downfield and win it. Did, did you have any idea that that was going to be Bill Walters' last game? No, no, not at all. Not at all, because he really surprised me after, because I think he broke down in tears. He started crying. And uh, then he made that announcement. And I had never thought about football without Bill Walsh. You know, I was fortunate that after, even after he stopped coaching, that he was still, you know, part of part of uh, management and stuff like that, you would see the guy around. But it was a, a big surprise to me. We look at that 49ers era and, and you're so associated with it and you kind of had that instant few years of, of success. But it took you a few years for you personally to win your first championship. And I, and I wonder, you know, having gone into a locker room where they'd already won two, how nice was it when you're having this great career three or four years in, but to... To win the championship, but also, you know, 215 yards in the Super Bowl as well must have been pretty special. Yeah, it was real special to me, but I, I remember the entire season. I remember watching those guys wear their rings. I said, oh my God, I want one, one of those. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, you know, like a running lot, uh, Joe or these guys, 
they would let me just, you know, these guys are actually wearing their Super Bowl rings. I want that. And then I found it felt good to uh, win a Super Bowl the way we went, won the Super Bowl, because that's the ball game. And we had to drive the ball all the way downfield uh, to win that Super Bowl. The brilliant, the GOAT, Jerry Rice talking uh, to us uh, for the Gridiron 100 show uh, and talking about the quarterback controversy, but then talking about the drive. I know I said about the catch being the great individual moment for the 49ers. The drive is the kind of uh, the other one that because in a number of the other 49ers Super Bowls, particularly in four and five, that it was it was relatively dominant. This was the one that really they were taken to the limit and they showed just how good they can be under pressure, I'll, just I'll, how good they can be in a tight matchup. And it was phenomenal, the performance there from Jerry Rice and that whole team. Yeah, I, it was a distillation of the greatness of Walsh on the sideline, Montana in the huddle over a period of three minutes in, in game time, you know. But, but... For Sam Weich, I mean, it's happy tales for the 49ers, guys. Sam Weich essentially had to stand on the sideline and watch a monster of his own creation beat him. And also, not only beat him, but there was a moment of regret as well. Because as good as the drive was, it should never have ended in a touchdown because there was an interception dropped in the end zone. But before we get to that, I first wanted to just get a feel for what his mood was going into that game and whether he felt... He could take down his own creation. Uh, I was until uh, the night before. I had to had to tell Stanley Wilson, who OD'd on some crack cocaine. He was a, a good guy. He's not an outlaw. He wasn't a you know a bad person at all. He just couldn't. The drug owned him. And the night before, <clears throat> I took it. I had to, you know I couldn't couldn't turn my head. I had to I had to act. And then, of course, we lost Tim Crumry, who was the heart and soul of our defense early in the game, first or second series of the game. So we didn't have all of our weapons for most of that game. That was one factor. So we were adjusting to that. And then when we scored the field goal to go up by three with just two and a half, three minutes to go, and then we kick off to San Francisco, and they're holding on the kickoff return. So they start on the nine-yard line. We think we're in good position. And I go over to Dick LeBeau, who's a terrific, one of the best, maybe the best defensive coordinators in history of the NFL, but one of the best, certainly. And I tell him, I said, look, now I'm wired, so I've got to turn my back to the camera. And, and uh, I don't want to get into a discussion with Dick or an argument about it, but I said, no prevent bring five guys. I know the system. I put it, I helped Bill put it in years ago. I know Bill, I know Joe Montana's reads. I helped there too for four years, <clears throat> bring five and he'll lay the ball off for a, to a, uh, uncovered hot receiver, a little halfback swing or something like that. First play. That's exactly what happened. We come up, make the tackle second and nine or second and eight. I think it was on the nine yard line. And um, Dick decides to go to the, the prevent defense, and we get pecked apart. And uh, to his credit, we drop an interception just a couple of plays before they score, uh, right in the end zone. Oh, we, if we don't drop that pass, we, we're the world champs because they only had one timeout left. And 
we could have sat down on the ball, but we didn't. We dropped the pass, and then with 34 seconds, of course, when Joe hit that, we had Jerry Rice. <laughs> I think we had about seven guys covering Jerry Rice, yeah. and one or two covering uh, Joe uh, John Taylor on the other side, and Joe throws a perfect pass. But our defense was really solid on that play. We we missed rerouting the ball by knocking it, you know, loose in flight. Two or three guys missed that ball by inches, and yeah. if any one of them takes that ball, it's incomplete. And who knows what happens in the next play? I think they had one more to go. Yeah. Tough loss, sad one. I, I hugged Paul Brown at the at the party afterwards and, and told him I wanted to win that one in the worst way for him because he had he had wanted a national been rated his uh, his uh, high school team had been rated number one. He'd been number one at Ohio State. He, Cleveland Browns had won 11 world championships, they called it, before the Super Bowl. But he hadn't won a Super Bowl yet. And I, I just felt bad for him. So we had a embrace during the party. Yeah, and it must have been, it must have been strange to watch that drive unfold when, you know, the, the guy... The guy orchestrating the the drive is really somebody you were instrumental in building. I mean, you you were you were the guy who helped put a lot of that in place. Yeah, well, that added to the pain. I will tell you that yeah. it was a tough loss. But after the game was over with, Bill Walsh had already announced that was his last game. He was retiring after that game, win or lose. And um, I go out and we're hugging each other. Bill and I, are, as I said earlier, our chemistry was we were like twin brothers in a lot of ways um we're hugging each other and i said you deserve it you know you had such a great career and go out a winner but whatever i said i don't know it's, it's, it was chaos but bill collapses in my arms i mean on the field but there's so many people pressing us around us that he's kind of propped up yeah. from the push and shove and i hold him up long enough to and i'm looking at him and he's looking at me like i think and i'm thinking you're about to pass out I didn't say anything, but I'm just saying to myself, you're about to pass out from the stress of the, and the relief as well. And he regained himself, and, and, uh, and we walked off the field arm in arm, basically. Uh, the brilliant Sam Weiss, absolutely lovely man, and there's some fantastic stuff on this in a book that's coming out in August next year. I don't know if you've heard. It's from my favourite NFL historian. Uh, and yes, the Bengals do get to feature, thanks to this rivalry with the San Francisco 49ers. Um the stuff at the end from Walsh there on Bill Walsh. And it's that dichotomy, it's that idea of Walsh and Brown and then Walsh and Weiss, where coordinator and head coach, such a sullied relationship to then have coordinator and head coach face in the second Super Bowl. But this time there was still such a loving relationship between the two. And, and a great relationship between Weiss and Paul Brown. Yeah. found that interesting as well. Like he said in there, he wanted to win that title for Paul Brown. And it's just, it is like a full circle. I mean, it's a full circle at the basic level. Bill Walsh won his first Super Bowl against the Bengals. He won his last Super Bowl against the Bengals. That was his last game as a coach, you know. And I think what's interesting is, Walsh would later admit regret at retiring when he did. Because as he said himself, he left behind the best team in football by a distance. And it was proven the next year when George Seifert, his defensive coordinator, takes the top job 
And they absolutely blitzed it the next season. I'm pretty sure they went 14-2. and two. And I think it was 55-10 to beat the Broncos in the mm-hmm. Super Bowl the next year. Now, that was the biggest victory margin in Super Bowl history. Probably still is, I would think. Can't immediately think of one that was bigger. And, yeah, I mean, he did... <laughs> Just wait for Super Bowl 53, 4, what are we on now? 54. Yeah, just wait for Super Bowl 54 when the New England Patriots and Antonio Brown absolutely tear a team apart and beat them by 50 points. Yeah, that could happen, to be fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe there was one of the Bills-Cowboys games that was a big score as well, but I would think it's, it's right up there. And that sums up the greatness. That was the greatness. And it was summed up on one magical night when Joe Montana drove down the field and executed one of two versions of what we know simply as the drive. Uh, again, I mean, maybe a little bit. It's, it's a Bill Walsh history, almost as much as it is yeah. a history of this rivalry. But the 49ers and the Bengals go head to head this weekend. Uh, full disclosure. We're recording this before the week one games, so I have no idea what their records are going into it. And it makes it very difficult to preview the game. I mean, we know the Bengals are on one. We just... <laughs> <laughs> and we're assuming the 49ers are as well. But um, look, this is, I really enjoyed doing this. I think it's really good fun. I really got really good feedback from the first one. And so hopefully people have enjoyed the little oral history of the, of the Bengals and the 49ers and what those two teams mean to each other. Matt Sherry, do you know what we've got coming up for us next week? Um, I do. Let me open the phone. I figured you'd know that I was going to ask that. And while I was asking it very slowly, you would make sure that you had it in front of you as to what we were going to talk about. So we have a, we have a very good one next week. Um, I'll, I'll mention the options because there's always options. The NFL every week have got a game this year that is meant to have historical significance. Well, this week we could have also done... Well, uh, the, the, the game they chose is Browns-Jets. Because it's Monday Night it's Football. It's Monday Night Football, and that was the first ever Monday Night Football game. These are the three that I've picked out for next week. Um, Rams at Browns. Now, this is quite a niche one. When the Cleveland Browns were formed, the, them going into Cleveland, it didn't, it didn't directly impact it, but basically, the, year, the first year of the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Rams at that time were the NFL champion and immediately moved out of the city. So there is a little bit of a link there. That's... That, yeah, yeah, tenuous as hell. <laughs> uh... Not <laughs> uh, Raiders Vikings Super Bowl eleven. Yeah, was it was an option. Um, at some point, we'll do something on the Purple People Eaters, which is the saddest story ever of a great team losing four Super Bowls. But we've gone. By the way, it's also one of the greatest episodes of America's Game when they did the the series of the the, the, the lost teams rings. never won it. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll do with the Bills at some point as well because I've already spoke to a few people involved in that. But we are going to go for the Super Bowl six matchup between the Dolphins and the Dallas Cowboys. Now, this really is going to be similar to this one. It's going to mainly be about the Cowboys. Um, We've spoke to Two Tall Jones and Gilbrandt, and we're going to take you into the building of America's team and the game that brought the championship, that validated everything that preceded it. Wonderful stuff. 
Matt Sherry, thank you for everyone who's listened in and enjoyed this. At Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram. Give us some love there. Rate and review the podcast as well. If you're enjoying these NFL 100s as well, the plan is to do them for this season. But there's a lot of history to the NFL. It could always be something that we there's a lot of our way to. Well. Yeah, that's, honestly, at some point, I'm just going to load all these interviews up because you're hearing two or three minute snippets of them. The, the, for example, the Sam Weiss interview from today is an hour and 10 minutes long. <laughs> and I want to listen to the whole thing at some point. And I will listen to the whole thing at some point. So, yeah, if you want more of this, let us know. At Gridiron on Twitter. Really appreciate you listening and enjoying the show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the NFL 100 show from Gridiron. Hello, you're listening to the Horse Ramble Daily, where we'll be covering all of your horse needs. There's more every day during the Cheltenham Festival. Betway are giving you the chance to win £50,000 in the free-to-play or to win game. Head to betway.com to play now. Up next, more horses. Horse, horse, horse. Horse, horse, horse. Horse, horse, horse. Full terms apply. 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org.